Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguysdarktower.blueberry.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll discuss book one, The Dark Tower, chapter two. Let's start the show. Great. Well, as always, Jay, we start off with a short description of what happens in this chapter. So um, still following the man in black, Roland encounters a young boy, Jake Chambers, at a way station in the desert. Roland hypnotizes Jake and learns that Jake has died in a world similar to ours when he was pushed into traffic. Um, Roland explores the cellar of the way station and encounters a demon that warns Roland about Jake and his relationship to the man in black. As Roland and Jake head out across the desert to follow the man in black, um, during arrest, Roland remembers an event from his past as a gunslinger in training that has a, is a pivotal moment in his um, life as a gunslinger. Uh, this story, um, like the gunslinger chapter before it was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in april of 1980 um, and then it was published obviously as the gunslinger in the first edition in 1982 um, one interesting thing that came up for me as i was doing the reading jay is uh i went out and bought the original trade paperback that i had as a kid and i started flipping through the pages and in addition to the color illustrations that are in there, I was able to quickly pick up on some changes between the version that came out in 2003 and that version that came out in 88 as a trade paperback. And I think- Oh, that's as, cool. Yeah. I, you know, and as you noted, there's like some really weird ones where it's just sort of King as a writer, just changing slight words. Um deleting things and then there's other times where there's whole sections of text that have been added to really fill out the world building as we discussed last time yeah some of that world building stuff really does stand out and i but i still feel it was a good change for the most part adding more details to the world is always a a a welcome addition yeah i would love to see somebody do it and if i had the time and energy um it would be interesting to me to just really explore and figure out why did he take away the word sir in this passage? And why did he change sat down to hunkered down? Um, but I know that that's mm. beyond the scope of this, but it, it would be an interesting analysis to go that far beyond the world building into the sort of the technical writing piece, especially if you did it in relation to King's on writing book and figured out, hey, are there adverbs that he took out that he notoriously yeah, hates? Or is there something he else? He really doesn't <laughs> like adverbs. Uh, there there was a site that I had saved on an old um, URL favorite that was every single difference from old to new version. And I discovered this over the weekend. I was you know, messing with a browser and I, I was like, oh, I got to check out this site. And the site is now defunct. Uh. So I must have saved that like six years ago or something. And now that site's gone. But if one person did it, Somebody else probably did it, or that that data is still floating around on the internet. I didn't bother doing a search for it, but if we really wanted the info, I'm sure we could get our hands on it. Yeah, I had a buddy who did it for the stand between the two editions of the stand, 
um, he went through chapter by chapter to note the differences between it. And it was, he did it on his blog and it was a very interesting read. And again, just trying to get into the head of the writer and figure out why did he make these changes? What was, what effect did it have on the story? Hmm. Um, so pretty cool. Yeah. So we're, we've got a couple things that I know we want to talk about in this, um, in this chapter. One of the things I just want to sort of pull out from, from last episode was uh, we continue with the stories within stories here. Uh, the, mm-hmm. You know, last time we did it. And again, we have it here where we've got uh, Jake's story of his death within the, the, the story of uh, the way station. And then obviously at the end, um, Roland's story of his childhood as a gunslinger in training. So again, that narrative device that, that Kings used, but um I think we wanted to start talking about, um, because in this chapter especially, we get a much better sense of how the world has started to move on and what exactly that means for the gunslinger and what implications that has for the story. Yeah, we've been hearing the phrase, the world has moved on, um, even from the very beginning of the book, and we're not really sure what that means, you know, or how quickly does has it happened or things like that, how much have things changed? And when we get that glimpse into Roland's childhood, his, what I'm thinking of, the the near past of Roland's world, because it's within his own lifetime, we can see that the place where he grew up, this uh, city of Gilead, was kind of like something like a medieval city, it was a walled it's described as a walled city with gardens and an aristocracy and a strict system of government and hierarchy of class um and it also felt like it had existed in this form for a long time many many generations generations beyond count perhaps um so it it seems like at least that corner of the world existed in this form where maybe other parts of it had been deteriorating much more or much more quickly um and it was their their internal uh you know struggle to keep things alive and keep things um keep things the way that they were for as long as possible and fight the forces of the world moving on um is what kept it that way and it seemed like an almost um i guess idyllic uh especially compared to the the wasteland and the desert and the dilapidated towns that we that we have encountered uh, elsewhere, you know, dialing back the clock a, a few years to to Roland's childhood sounds like a, a nice deal. And and that idyllic notion where even if we're saying it's a medieval type of hierarchy, and I think Roland actually says he lived in a castle, um, mm-hmm. and they're in a walled city, and yet in the kitchen they have. An electric stove so it's not to- yeah. totally medieval and it's the only electric stove around right there mm-hmm. and and the the cook hacks sort of that's his domain but it's it, it's interesting that you get this sort of anachronistic look at hey it's a castle but it's got electricity so what exactly does moving on mean in that context is it because they did have something, how did they have electricity, but yet still were living in castles and had this hierarchy? So again, I think we're meant to question, and obviously we'll get into it, is what 
when we say the world has moved on, moved on from what and what world exactly, because it might not be ours. Right. And, and I think that the world moved on is a really great choice of phrase, because I think for the most part, almost always, it means the world has deteriorated, the world has fallen apart, the world has gotten worse. But it's not just that, and it's not only that direction. But it does mean that what was is no longer and it's progressing into like maybe just a state of entropy. And that's the that is the thing that it seems that Roland is struggling against. He doesn't really understand that, but he feels like that's what's going wrong and that's what he needs to fix. Yep. And I can't seem to find where I noted it, but the one thing he says is that I think gets to your point of how it's the whole world has moved on was um, he's looking at Jake, the boy, and he says, the boy's face uh, took on a shadow, but everyone's faces were shadows now, as if hmm. there's no one in this world who hasn't been impacted. There's no light and happiness anymore because the world has moved on. And even though even there's no one who hasn't been ground down a bit by the world. Yes, exactly. And it's just, hey, that boy's faces. And I think that that might be why he has this uh, immediate kinship with Jake initially. Um, and, and is fond of him, and yet, you know, he realizes that he's been impacted with the shadow for his face. So some of the things we pick up on this world moving on piece, you know, um, early on we get a reference to the rain in Spain, which, um, you know, yeah. is from My Fair Lady musical in our world. Uh, obviously some different lyrics in this version, but, you know, again, same with the Hey Jude, there's some pieces that have, have moved on. Um, references to King Arthur who both Jake knows in our world and, and he um, a myth in our world, but what seems to be maybe something closer to uh legend than myth, I guess in, in Roland's world where King Arthur might be historical more than, more than just a story. I think it also feels like a, a historical or a legendary claim of, Yes. What's the word? Hereditary primacy or some nonsense like that. Right. It's like it's like, well, my authority comes from my lineage all the way back to King Arthur. And I can prove it through this, that, and the other documentation, just like Game of Thrones. Sure. You know, like whoever assumes the throne, they say that they are the king of this and the son of that and the yada 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 of but basically every person who assumes the throne tr suddenly traces his or her lineage all the way back to you know the first person the first the, man yep so i think it's probably a bit of that and there are certainly many historical examples of that in western culture and probably in uh cultures all over the world so i suspect that's more of what it is but i really love the that moment when um this was just one of many times when jake truly surprised roland when Jake mentioned, or I forget, was it Roland asked Jake, like, have you heard of King Arthur or something yes. like that? And, and Jake's like, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I know King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table. And, and Roland was just floored by this. He's like, wait, you know about Arthur Eld? And, you know, and so it's it was one of those times when you could just picture him kind of growing cross-eyed for a moment and, and almost losing his, his ability to stand. So some of the other uh, pieces of the world moving on, we've got... Um... In in the flashback story that Roland has, 
his friend Cuthbert has a hawk named David, and it's mm-hmm. directly related to the story of uh, David and Goliath from the Bible. Um, he right. makes references to the sling. Um, and very early on, when Roland awakes, having fainted when he first meets Jake from the, the heat and the stress of, of getting across the desert, there's water coming from a pump in the mm-hmm. back room of the uh, of the way station. Um, and when Roland goes to investigate the pump, he realizes that, you know, it's stainless steel and chrome, which he immediately recognizes and he knows how to use the pump and it functions. And he says, oh, this must be powered by a radioactive slug because there's no electricity within a thousand miles of this place. He's shocked that it's there, but he's more shocked that it's there because it hadn't been looted in some way and that it's still functioning. It's not that, hey, this is weird that there's a existing pump. So again, that in-between understanding of what's, you know, they're in a world that has, the way station was for coaches, not necessarily for a car or a train. And yet there's mm-hmm. a pump that's running on radioactivity, radioactive slugs. So just sort of the yeah. oddness. And and th- this is like our first encounter with the leftover technology of some really advanced civilization, I guess. Yep. Um, you know, the, the water pump um, is evidence of not only has the moved on from a better version of like the old West, like that we we've seen in Tull or the the walled city that we've seen a, a little bit of a description of, of Gilead, but it's that um, this was once a, a world full of technological wonder mm-hmm. that, that technology had advanced to the point where you could have something powered by a radioactive slug that in the place of a chemical battery that could last for kind of forever. It would just always make electricity. And the fact that, to your point, like it's kind of amazing that Roland seems to have this wide-ranging education of the world and its history, perhaps, um, where when he encounters this, he's not surprised by its existence. He's surprised that, that it still works. Yeah. But it still kind of freaks him out when it, when <laughs> when it, works. it works. It's like, oh, it's, there's water actually coming out of it, you know? <laughs> so... It, it, the engineers at North Central Positronics obviously knew what they were doing, right? Yes. <laughs> I've started to keep a list of um, names, characters, and other references that whether not whether or not I'm going to see if they're important or not coming through because they're starting to come up over and over again, some of the people. And obviously, um, in this flashback, we get to meet Cuthbert, who was mentioned, I think, in the first chapter as one of his friends and now we get to see the characterization of that and so um there's a ton mentioned in this piece you know as he talks about how the world had been and how it was moved on and i just you know martin and elaine and susan and court and uh jamie and jonas there's just a ton of people and i'm just starting to okay who are these people and how are they gonna impact the story moving forward yeah and and this is when we we are not only uh mention court but we are introduced to him and see see a bit of what makes him tick and and what what he's all about and he's he's a kind of terrifying person but it it also becomes very clear that he is perhaps the last stage of training for a gunslinger to become a gunslinger Mm -hmm. and and i guess if he's like 
Roland's version of a drill sergeant. That's exactly and what I was thinking. Drill sergeants don't uh, get you ready for the army by, by being nice to you and gentle and supportive. There must be some proof for, for the psychology and the, the physical abuse that makes this work somehow. But uh, Court's a, an interesting character who I really grew to like and appreciate um, as I learned more about him. Yes. And you, it, the, the, the scene where he's, uh, you know, smacking Cuthbert around and mm-hmm. even Cuthbert, who we very early on, I, you know, he, he says he's always laughing. And he even was laughing as he died, uh, Roland yeah. recalls. But, you know, even after he's been beat down a couple times, he sticks his tongue out from to Court mm-hmm. behind behind his back. And Court has seen it, the reflection in Roland's eyes and knows I'm going to get you for that and punches uh-huh. him right in the head. The Arlie Ermy character of, uh, yeah. <laughs> of uh, the Dark Tower. Yep. Right after Court hits Cuthbert for the sticking his tongue out and again, when they're under the stairs there are moments when 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 roland sees something in his eyes and he says you will be a gunslinger mm-hmm. he he recognizes the the hardness the the sand in his eyes that there, there's a there's a killer behind that that grin and that's one of the things that i guess makes cuthbert able to become to graduate so to speak to be a gunslinger and so far we only know that he was Roland's companion, and now we're getting to meet him as a boy in training, but we're already starting to see he's very different from Roland, but he is in his own way quite uh, quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. So the interesting part in the whole world moving on is really when Roland determines he wants to hypnotize Jake to find out who exactly this boy is and where he came from and during under hypnosis jake reveals that he lived in new york city and that Mm -hmm. was where he was killed and the impression i get from the way the story is told is that jake is the one telling the story under hypnosis but it's really from this sort of he's removed from it as well so um, and I think at the end, Roland's yeah, it's like a double filter. Like it has to be Jake telling the story. Like the the logistics of this is he's telling Roland what happened to him, and Roll. But we're getting it from Roland's perspective. Yes, because there are pieces in it where Roland says the boy didn't say this outright, but it was implicit in how he discussed it, or it came out, or he got a feeling of it from the way that Jake tells it. So even though it's first person from Jake, it's really third person and there there's that filter. But the I guess the shock for us and for Roland is that the world that Jake is from, which I think we can fairly safely say is our world, your world, Jay, and my world, right? It's right. It's it's the New York City of what looks to be the late seventies, early eighties, um, is not the world of Roland. That Potentially, if we thought the world had moved on from our world, that's right. That's not the case. Yes, the Roland's world is not a post-apocalyptic New York or something like that. It's some other world. It's some other it, world, as far as we can tell from how this story is told from Jake's perspective. Right, and the addition of Jake to the to this story overall, and in the way that he's 
introduced or, or in the in the way that he I guess crosses over to Roland's world, mm. um, to my mind, is what firmly entrenches the larger gunslinger story into science fiction. Up until this point, it could have been written off as simply fantasy or even just a western. Yeah. Just in a strange setting or a strange town or or something like that. But now that we have this idea of multiple worlds, it's not just fantasy anymore. Now it's science fiction too. And this blending of genres is one of the things that makes this whole series of books kind of unique just from a literary perspective. And for me, what one of the things that makes it special and fun. I, I just wanted to kind of echo what you said that, you know, the fact that Jake's world is not Roland's world, that it sets Roland's world apart from our own in a way that it kind of broadens or, or opens up the mystery. It's like, it's not just our world fell apart or there was some disaster that led to this. It was, no, it's had a whole different beginning, middle and, and end and got to where it is. And there's also our world that, is somehow firmly connected to Roland's, but it's not the same place. So again, this is the whole science fiction plus fantasy genre crossing thing. And since this is Stephen King writing it, I wouldn't be surprised to get some horror stuff <laughs> at some point. Well, so, so, so the, I think that that's a good segue into what I was going to say is that really for us, the only connection at this point is jake and the man in black right so that's the connection between the two worlds that yeah that they're the only connection um let me take that back they're the only immediate connection between the two worlds obviously you know the references to music and religion and other things are similar but the the immediate connection is jake has been killed in midtown manhattan by the man in black um I think that that's fairly obvious from Roland's understanding of the story being told. And yet they're both, Jake is alive, obviously, or seems to be alive in the, in Roland's world. And the man in black is in Roland's world too. So they have both somehow crossed over. Uh, Jake seems to have crossed over at his death because he doesn't remember it. And he says he's struggling to remember what had been, you know, he, he describes the statue of Liberty, but isn't able to, comprehend exactly what that was and he starts to try to explain gro- or department stores but he the details are fading like it was a dream yes and he said I, I probably won't even know i'm jake within a day or two so so who are we meant to think this jake chambers is and why is he important to the story and obviously this is what i learned in first semester of english lit grad school Oh, look, his initials are JC. That seems like mm-hmm. that might be important. Um, but what else do we know about Jake? And he had, to, <laughs> he had to die to uh, resur- be resurrected into Roland's world. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, but what else do we know about Jake and how do we want to start to understand this character and why he's important to the, to the story and to Roland's quest to find the, the man in black and the Dark Tower? The first piece when Roland meets Jake, you know, he's shocked to see him. He tells his story and, you know, Jake's getting very upset that he can't remember things and he used to know about TV and now he's in this desolate place and he's all alone. And Roland's first reaction is, don't feel sorry for yourself, make do. And (laughs) 
it, it, I, I, as you got to the end of the chapter, when I read this the second time, I was like, oh, it's almost as if Court's saying that. Like I could almost hear Court telling Cuthbert and Roland, don't feel sorry for yourself, make do. And that's sort of Roland's first reaction to the boys, right? Like man up. Yeah. Grow yeah, us, be tougher. Be tougher. Um, and yet almost within, you know, within the same scene, he starts to notice, hey, even though this boy is, looks delicate and he describes his delicate features and, you know, how out of place he is in this rough world that he has an inner toughness to him. Yes. And he immediately starts to respect that. Like, hey, this boy is, is something here. Um, and mm-hmm. he starts, he's, he's drawn to him immediately even knowing that being drawn to him is potentially another obstacle probably set up by the man in black. Yeah. It becomes obvious that just about everything that the gunslinger encounters along the way is in one form or another, a trap set by the man in black. So when he, when Roland meets Jake, the first thing he thinks is going to be, you know, this is a trap. This is, I, I need to I need to figure out why this is a trap, how it's a trap, see if I can avoid the trap, but ultimately, just like in Tull, he just goes right through it. But that's a part of Roland's character that um that I think makes him able to overcome the trap, I guess, in the same way. It's like the same thing that keeps him from that makes him fall for the trap is is what allows him to survive the trap. Mm. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like that romantic side of his nature. If he were if he were just like being practical about it, he probably would have just walked away from Jake and left him there to die and moved on. It would have saved him some time, some heartache and and maybe he would have caught up with the man in black the next day or something and instead he takes jake under his wing and yep. um and he just knows this isn't going to end well and there's a there's a line that i liked um that relates to this that how the the gunslinger was kind of ruminating on the situation and says you know he had asked for it talking about the the so-called game that he's playing with his pursuit of the man in black um but he had not asked for the game to become this dirty. Mm, yep. Uh, so like, like we talked about in the last episode, the gunslinger needs to play this game, but, um, and he needs it to be difficult, but he doesn't, I think maybe at this point he's, he doesn't need it to be so awful all right. the time. Like it needs to be hard. It needs to be a struggle. Otherwise it's not real, but, does it have to break his heart over and over again? And I think because uh, we've we've gotten hints about his old friends like like Cuthbert and Elaine, and then we met you know the characters in Tull, and now we've met Jake, and it's like here we go again. Yep, it's funny though that this is what this is what it takes to make Roland think that this is where it gets dirty, as if killing fifty nine people. A week earlier, including yeah. children, <laughs> including children at that point, wasn't. But, you know, he says uh, Jake falls asleep and he says he's Jake looking small and peaceful and harmless. 
The gunslinger did not believe he was harmless. There was a deadly feeling about him to stink of yet another trap. He didn't like the feeling, but he liked the boy. He liked him a great deal. So um, yeah. we've, we've seen that Roland is able to, despite his what seems to be gruff exterior, make connections with people fairly quickly, um, even when he knows he probably shouldn't. You know, last chapter was uh, Alice and Tull and um, mm -hmm. even even his connection with Brown, where he tells the story to the hermit on the edge of the desert. Um, and now he yeah. instantly connects with Jake, um, despite knowing that this is probably going to be problematic. And if you look back on it, he, he exposes himself to bodily harm or even his own murder by every one of the people you just named simply by falling asleep in front of them. Yep. And so like, yeah, he's got like these super quick reflexes and he always has his guns on his hips and stuff like that. But you know, when he passed out at the way station, he was on death's door and Jake nursed him to health rather than pulling one of his guns out of his holster and shooting him where he lay or taking and, a pitchfork. I think he also mentioned. And yeah. Poking yeah him. He's yep. like, I, I thought about killing you, but I changed my mind and I'm glad I didn't like, so I mean, there's that kind of trap, but I think it's a, it's going to be a little bit more dirty than that. And I think what you were saying earlier about how the gunslinger becomes fond of Jake, like that, that quickly develops into, it goes from like, like he just kind of likes him and then he respects him and admires him. And then I think that he actually begins to love him yeah. as a, um, you know, almost like a, as a father son type of, of thing. And this happens very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is truly what the trap is. And um, there's a line that, that in there that says, um, was there ever a trap to match the trap of love? And that's what the man in black really was throwing at Roland was I'm going to give you, I'm just going to put somebody in your way who you're going to love. And then you're going to have to spend time caring for and protecting and worrying about this person and it's only going to slow you down if nothing else and i guess from a evil guy perspective you got to give the, the man in black some credit like how did he pick jake i mean it's a, he essentially scoured the world our world and said this is the person that i need to drag into and throw at roland to mess him up or to just mess with him it wasn't just the next person walking down the street. It had, he had to have some agency in that decision. So right. how did he pick Jake? How did, you know, what was it about Jake and how did he figure that out? How did he find Jake? Yeah. And I don't know. It, maybe we'll get some clues at some point, but you yeah. know, it, I guess as a, as a reader without spoilers, just sort of looking at the chapter, the things that you would have to look at and pull out are, you know, Jake seems to have an odd relationship with his parents his father is distant and remote and not around much. I think the line that Jake says in his retelling is he probably could pick his dad out of a lineup if he had to, you know, uh -huh. like he's not sure. And his mother, um, I think they, they say, you know, she gets in bed with her sick friends and she was mm -hmm. thin in a sexy ways. So, and, you know, when you read that and earlier you had read in this chapter, or maybe it was later when Roland talks about, how he and Susan had talked about the Oedipus complex and he realized yeah. that there's an Oedipus complex between, he says his father, his mother, 
the man in black and possibly himself, that there wasn't just a love triangle, there was pro- potentially a quadrangle. So, you mm-hmm. know, you could start to see that there's themes in Jake's story that might be reflected in some of Roland's story. We don't know all the details of either one of them at this point, but does that have something to do with it? Any of these, you know, these relationships that Jake has and the relationships that that Roland has and what he sees in himself. And obviously it has some impact on Roland because he starts to think back to his past when he was a child as a result of being around Jake. Right. And when you mentioned the uh, Jake's parents, it uh, reminded me of how I got the idea that even though Jake's pulled into Roland's world to just be a trap to, for Roland to, to manipulate Roland by the man in black, that if Jake had never been uh, involved in this story, if he had just lived out his life as, as it was going on the trajectory that it was going, that he probably would have turned into kind of like a shitty person because Mm. of his, his upbringing. You know, he had, sounds like he had some lousy parents and a lousy home environment. And he was just surrounded by people who didn't seem to really care about him very much. And that's, and he seemed to already be on his way into kind of a bad place. And so I think that in a way, this change of scenery, if you will, kind of saved Jake from himself. There's a, a line that says that, uh, I think this was part of Roland's interpretation of Jake's story that says that he is too young to hate himself yet, mm. but that seed is already there and given time it will grow and bear bitter fruit. So, you know, the gunslinger not even being from Jake's world and maybe missing out on a lot of the context of the cultural commentary that Jake is providing um, already sees that Jake has the seed of some bitter fruit within him. Mm-hmm. And that if he had allowed that to, to grow in his New York family and his, you know, with his parents and being mostly raised by his housekeeper, yeah, I think he would have turned out to be like, you know, kind of a rotten person. Yeah. Certainly not the person that he shows the potential he could be just from what we've met in his interactions with Roland. So if we move on from from Jake and the story, what the next piece is that um, just from a plot perspective, they decide to move on and continue to follow the man in black and Roland decides not to leave Jake behind, right, to take him with him. Uh, but before right. they do, they need to get supplies. Uh, Roland ends up in the cellar of the way station to get some food uh, and cans. And this is where he meets um, a demon of some sort that is crawling yeah, he calls through it the speaking demon. Yes. And uh, the, the speaking demon warns what Roland obviously already knew, right. Uh, to some extent that as long as you have the boy, the man in black will be in your, or you'll be in the man in black's pocket. Right. Like, and and so knowing that and even having the trap explicitly spelled out by a demon um roland's like all right well what can i do uh Mm -hmm. i think the important thing here is he takes a jawbone he seems to you know he says that there's a uh take from the dead the dead you can take from it and he knows that maybe this jawbone will have some use at some point Um, yeah and and there it the voice he hears is is Ali's voice and yes. uh, even though this has no connection to Ali this is ha- this is happening we don't know how much longer but i mean it's a geographically totally different place 
happened where Allie, where where he murdered Allie. Um, so it's it can't be her bones, it can't be her skeleton, but it's her voice that hears. Yep. I, I don't know what that really means. Maybe it's just that that's the person he has on his mind. Um, but um, I guess it could have worked just as well if it were his <clears throat> mother's voice or Jake's voice or something like that. Right. And it's interesting that he knows without question, you know, we're starting to get a, like, he doesn't seem perturbed by the fact that Jake was dead and now he's sitting in front of him. He doesn't seem, yeah. you know, he said, they say he feels a terror at first when he sees the demon, but he seems fairly calm about a demon speaking to him and he knows exactly what to do and how to respond to it. And he knows the, the custom that you need to, you know, he did not want to do the next thing, but custom was strict. Take the dead from the dead. The old proverb said, and only a corpse may speak true prophecy like he knows what to do with that like mm -hmm. as we get into that fantasy world you wonder he wasn't just taught to shoot guns he must have been taught much more than that to know yeah hey, this is this is sort of how this world works and it's new to us yeah. but not for him it, like I, I i use the word education a lot and i i don't think of it as like okay well now's your now read your speaking demon textbook you know and write an essay on it i mean it's like maybe it's part of the the culture of gilead that this is this happens or other gunslingers over time have similar encounters and recorded them and this is you know the legend but i think that it's it's interesting that while he's not only is he not surprised by this and knows exactly what to do with it but i it seems like he's more comfortable with a speaking demon and jawbones than he is with the electric water pump yes like that the that magical encounter with a demon is more more natural for him mm -hmm. in his world that has moved on that he exists with exists in than the radioactive slug that powers an electric pump sure and yep maybe that that gives us some sense of just how ancient that advanced technology is that it's so old that it's all the more foreign to him than this magical <laughs> demon you know type of stuff so they you know he 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 gets out of the way station with the food and they saddle up and the continuation of their trip towards the mountains where they believe the man in black is and this is where he comes to love jake because he sees the strength within him right he's able yes. he doesn't really slow him down at all they seem to be gaining on the man in black and, you know, he is able to carry these water saddles, Jake is, um, mm -hmm. and it's not until the third or fourth day that he starts to really get the heat and they're like, okay, we'll just rest for 15 minutes every day at this time and move on. And, you know, Jake's able to hold his own and that's when Roland yeah. realizes, hey, this guy, this kid's got something. I think he says he's got juice and mm -hmm. um, he gains even more respect for Jake as they continue this journey. and. The one interesting piece that I had pulled out as a, as a reader who has forgotten so much about this, he says to the boy, you know, what are we doing when we get to the man in black? And he says, I have something I need to ask him and he, I need him to, I might need him to take me someplace. And Jake doesn't say, what do you need to ask him? He says, where do you need to take him? And it's mm -hmm. to the tower. And as a reader, I was just like, well, what do you need to ask him? I want to know what, yeah. what's that question that you need to ask or what's the answer you need to get? 
um, and that's not revealed yet. So we're starting to get more, whereas the last chapter it was very much, hey, he's following the man in black. Now we're getting a little bit more piece of what's what's this Why journey? Why is he following him? Why is he following him? What does this journey entail? And it's in this section where we learn a lot more about Roland and his upbringing and who he is. And, um, you know, basically the story is, is that he and Cuthbert are being trained by court to be gunslingers. There seems to be some sort of faction of some sort that seems to want to maybe throw down with the hierarchy in some way. And just by happenstance, Roland and Cuthbert hear of a plan that Hex and a a soldier have to poison a another town. Um, both of them tell their fathers, and Hex is hung for being a traitor. Yeah. Um, and then as part of their training, they both go to see Hex be hanged for, for being a traitor. That's sort of the summary of the flashback that we get. Mm-hmm. And that story seems like it's going to be important and interesting to the overall story as we learn a little bit more about Gilead and its fall because we do we hear during the story that Gilead falls five years later. Um, right. But I think of more interest is what do we learn about Roland here and what type of person is he here and what type of person does he become as a result of this? Yeah, what 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 potential does he show at even at this younger age? There's a, a point in that that flashback of the time as, as a boy where I think the the gunslinger sells him, himself short. At one point he regards himself as hardly having an imagination of being only like a notch above a quote dangerous dullard. Mm-hmm. But later on the same page of the book, he finds himself surprised at turns and at turns bemused and nostalgic. And I don't think a person with this level of introspection and imagination is anywhere near a dullard, not to mention his deep romantic streak. When they approach the gallows, Roland recognizes and understands the lesson of the gallows, quote, with his usual stubborn and inarticulate doggedness, unquote. So is he a dangerous dullard? Absolutely not. But he seems to think he is. Or maybe King, again, wants us to think he is. But it seems like somehow or another, the people who know Roland best have convinced him that unlike the people around him, like his friends, he doesn't have a sense of humor like Cuthbert. He's not always laughing like Cuthbert. He's not like really, really super intelligent like Elaine. But he's not a dullard. No. Not, not, not by a long shot. He has a lot going for him. And he he takes the, the splinter of wood from the gallows, and Cuthbert says, why did you do that? And he realizes, oh, I could say something pithy here that would make me seem very intelligent. Yeah. But he's just saying, just, I want to remember this. But the fact that he's introspective enough to realize, I could say something here, but I'm not going to. Um, right. Starts to get to that, right? I mean, he's he's very much aware of these things, that he's able to pull out the moral of the story. and. He's able to say, what would court, why did court make us do this? Why are we mm-hmm. in this situation? Our fathers wanted to teach us something by sending us here. So you do learn a lot about, about Roland along that way. And even, um, I think it's right on the same page as the quote you just pulled. He says, for the first time in his life, Roland found himself hating his own childhood. He wished for the long boots of age. Yes. And it's interesting that he is having this flashback 
as he's really looking over Jake, right? Mm -hmm. Who he realizes isn't going to have that age, right? He's going to be stuck as a child the rest of his life. Um, I mean, he's already died as a child. And so I think that that's one of the things that sparks his imagination is to what was I like as a child? And did I lose something by being a child? Because the things that happened in my childhood weren't normal necessarily. They and they were hard, obviously. His his mm-hmm. father seems to be a hard man. Court is obviously a hard man. Um, and, you know, at a young age, it seems like the world started to move on from the life he led. And I'm sure that we're going to find out that that was, was not easy and was difficult. So Yeah, that was actually one of uh, the better lines that I, I wrote down. I, I love that long boots of age. Yes. That's a pretty great one. And, you know, just going on about how, like, Roland selling himself short. You know, we've talked in the previous episode about how he's described as mechanical or a romantic without imagination. And there have been other indications in the book that Roland is not particularly intelligent, something that I very much disagree with. But when Roland's father says to him, morals may always be beyond you. You are not quick. That's all right, though. It will make you formidable. Makes me wonder, why does this make Roland formidable? Do you have any guesses as to what makes somebody formidable by not having morals? It, it's interesting because I was thinking about that. There's two lines that start to get at that. One comes much earlier than this, and one comes later. And the first one comes when he meets Jake, and Jake asks, they're talking about the man in black, and Jake asks, is he a bad man? And Roland responds, I guess that depends on where you're standing. And he, hmm. in, in fact, here's the adverbs that, that King hates. The gunslinger said absently. So it's almost, uh-huh. a, it's almost a throwaway line. I guess it depends on where you're standing. And then later, when Cuthbert and Roland are at the hanging, he says, when traitors are called heroes or heroes traitors, he supposed in his frowning way, Dark times must have fallen. Yeah. He's already, to your point about the morals, he already realizes that morals are really a way of looking at life. And it really depends on what side you're on, right? It's not. Morals are subjective. They're very subjective. And he has realized that both at his childhood, Mm -hmm. you know, and then when he's older, he's like, is he a bad man? I suppose that where you're standing. And I think that gets to a little bit of the formidableness, right? That, hey, as long as you realize that and you can understand that, it lets you do whatever you want, <laughs> potentially. What are, what are your thoughts? How would you, I mean, how would you take away that? Well, like, like he says, morals are beyond you and you're not quick. So it's like, well, you don't have morals and, or you're, you don't, you're not encumbered by morals, I guess is maybe a better way of putting it. And you're not quick, meaning you're not intelligent. You're not, your brain doesn't move quickly or, or something along those lines. And to me, if I wanted to see an advantage in that, if that were a, a, an accurate description of Roland, then maybe not being quick would be, would mean he's not, he's not encumbered by rumination. Like he's not overthinking things. He's not wasting time thinking about stuff when he just needs to take action he will just take action and i think that maybe not being encumbered by morals will allow him to take the 
necessary action at the time he needs to take it rather than thinking, is this the right thing to do? And again, then he's like caught in his own head overthinking things. Right. It's not that he's an amoral person and it's not that he has no intelligence, but somehow he's maybe he's formidable because he's not encumbered by the barriers of morals and intelligence that maybe most people are. Mm. He can just move through life without that burden. Right. So then it makes you question his father then, right? Because obviously they seem to have been raised in a very hierarchical society. Mm -hmm. And his father seems to have some large importance as a gunslinger. And he's being raised to be a gunslinger. And yet it seems as if his father is happy that he's going to be able to work outside the bounds of that very strict society, potentially. Potentially. Or... Or make the most of use of the society that they have and be the the pinnacle of gunslingers in some way, potentially, because he will not be tied down by what you're, as you're saying, what's good or, nece- you know, he'll do what's necessary. Maybe it's a, a form of asceticism, like uh, in some ways, uh, gunslingers are, uh, it's easy to draw a parallel to them as being knights, but in some ways they're kind of uh, a priest or a monk. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe by shedding, or in Roland's case, never having the burden of morals and uh, some mental acuity that others have, it's like shedding those things. It's finding that ohm or that nirvana or something like that, where it's like, all right, yeah, I truly understand that it doesn't matter what I do as long as the right result happens mm-hmm. in the moment. And I suppose if that's true, like if you really just had no morals and you, then you could just do anything that you think is appropriate at the time. And if your training is enough to guide you and your instincts are enough to guide you, then maybe you really are formidable. But it also sort of paints him as like a a sociopath a bit. And I don't (laughs) think he is, not even a little bit. No, he's obviously not. I mean, the empathy he shows towards... The people that he, I mean, he, like we talked earlier, he has an instant connection to people. Yeah. Um, unless you're supposed to question why he has this instant connection that he's being manipulated by the man in black, potentially. Um, but it doesn't seem that way. It seems like he does have a real connection with. And he's, he doesn't show any of the signs that, that as I understand. Them. No. You know, it's like you don't need to be a sociopath to kill everybody in the town because they were all trying to kill him. Right. You know, it would have been very different if he had just walked into town and started shooting people. That's and true. that is not what he did. He was prepared to defend himself with deadly force, but he wasn't going to start anything. I agree that he is formidable, but I'm not sure I agree with his father's assessment of him for the reasons that he is formidable. But I guess it's food for thought. Maybe we'll learn more about him in the coming chapters and books. Maybe, or maybe he'll die on the first page of the next chapter and we'll never know what happened. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> never know. We'll never know. I just want to pull out this one last quote. They're talking about hacks. And I, th- I think it gives an insight into the gunslingers themselves. He says he even loved the boys who had begun the way of the gun, although they were different from other children, undemonstrative and always slightly dangerous, not in an adult way, but rather as if they were ordinary children with a slight touch of madness. Mm -hmm. As if they're just 
built a little bit differently, that there's something in their mind that's slightly unhinged. Um, and maybe that's a piece of it too that makes them formidable, right? That they've yeah. not, that they've got that madness in them. It's not made clear, but I get the impression that the children who are put through this, you know, SEAL team training that <laughs> the, they start off at the, you know, very young age, it's like I think that they're probably groomed or filtered or sorted in some way. Like they, you need to already be a certain way or have some group of traits and characteristics before they would even consider you. Right. You know, where the the adults in the community would say that kid, <laughs> that kid has you know what it takes to be a gunslinger. Let's start him on the path, and then at any point along the way, you can just nope out of it. It's only when you get all the way up to that graduation day when you are officially a gunslinger and you inherit the guns. And even at that point, you have a role, right? Like Roland says he knows he'll be on the long roads with the, with his horse, where he right. says other folks will be ambassadors or, you know, almost like a, a little princes in some way and not necessarily fall, even though they're gunslingers, they've, they've got a different role in society, right? More formal yes. and so um and that's the change that he sees in cuthbert at the end right when he sees and looks in his eyes and realizes hey this boy who i thought was soft or he's not or not he actually it does have what it takes to be mm -hmm. the gunslinger who will pull his guns as opposed to a gunslinger who might be more ceremonial yeah and i'm not even sure that there are these ceremonial gunslingers i think it was more that gunslingers perform official ceremonies mm. like the hanging that right. we we witness but they also seem to play the role of politicians yes and diplomats and but i think that means that they're always out ranging if you will mm. using the uh game of thrones parlance i don't know if there are steward uh <laughs> gunslingers i i had a another really favorite line that i i wanted to share um there's a description of the mountains mm. it was they could see the smooth, stepped rise of the desert into the foothills, the first naked slopes, the bedrock bursting through the skin of the earth in sullen, eroded triumph. Yeah, it's just great imagery there. I mean, it's just like the mountains weren't just there. They had punctured through the surface of the world, and they were proud of it. Yep. Our next piece is that we're going to be in the mountains, I assume, because chapter three... Of the gunslinger is called the oracle and the mountains so we'll That's be right. leaving the desert as roland and jake continue their journey after the man in black and that'll be our subject for the next podcast if i'm correct is that right jay that's right we're gonna cover chapter three of the dark tower book one great well that's all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thank you jay thank you as always, links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes for this episode. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com or follow us at our Twitter feed at twoguysdarktower. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thank you for listening. <laughs>